Welcome to Famous Lost Words. I'm Christopher Ward. And I'm Tom Jokic. And I should mention right off the top here, this is a deep dive into the musical archives. Mm -hmm. And uh, anytime you want to go back and check out any of our earlier programs, you can do so on the iHeartRadio app. For sure. You You know, Christopher... Right outside this door, the archive is literally right there. There's tapes, <laughs> Can we see it? there's CDs, there's dats of all things, there's the mini discs. Like we saved oh all of these interviews over the years in so many different formats. The problem is finding tape decks and dat machines and mini disc oh. players to play them back. Oh, I have cassettes. Our, you know, our show is produced by Adam Karsh. I literally bring cassettes into Adam so that he can dub them across so that I can listen to them digitally. He's so waiting for the 8-tracks. I so just know it's, it. <laughs> <laughs> it's insane the number of uh, archived interviews that we have from over the years going back you know, to the 60s all the way up until now. But the fun part is sometimes deciphering what the labeling on the tapes mean. Sometimes you ask me when it's from, and I have to guess based on what the artist is saying. And, um, right. and sometimes like which album they're referring that's right. to. And, and we do have a, a, like a spreadsheet on this, but whoever filled out the spreadsheet, they don't know how to spell Bob Seeger. It's Bob Seeger, right? <laughs> and so, and, and he so, was a smoking great artist. Right, right. And so I actually have to kind of, de- I have to kind of decipher everything and oh, figure man. out exactly what it means. So uh, sometimes you'll ask me what year it's from and I'll have no idea, uh, but I'll only have, be able to guess as to what year we're talking about. Mm. And some but, of it's on papyrus as well. Right? That's right. Right. That's right. Yeah. Uh, But I can tell you that we're going to start today with an incredible interview with David Bowie from 1978. Ah. Um, And he's got a lot to say about his music, materialism, money and punk. And it is a fascinating interview. Um, We also have. Oh, this is something. An interview from 1997 with Michael Hutchins and Gary from In Excess. Right. Gary Beers. Now. You know what happened in 1997? Michael died that year. So Uh, this is six, seven months before he died. Is it 20 years ago? Yes, it's 20 years ago. 21 now. Yeah. Yeah. It is crazy that he's been gone so long. It's also crazy to hear him in this interview. And it's emotional only in the sense that here he is. He's vibrant. He's happy. He's excited about the new album. Anyway, we'll play that for you in just a few minutes. But I really wanted everybody to hear that. Uh, We also have a terrific interview right in the midst of all the mayhem in Fleetwood Mac, okay? It is... Oh, they did mayhem so well. Crazy fun, and there's some really joyful and disturbing moments that I'm about to play you um, a little bit later on in the show. I can't wait. I'm hearing this stuff for the first time, too. It's true. You are. Hey, by the way, Tom, we have uh, a fantastic interview with... Linda Ronstadt. From, I love Linda Ronstadt. Oh, man. She's the best. Yeah. This is from around 89. Remember she did that uh, duet with Aaron Neville? I don't know much. Yes, I do. Ooh, that's <laughs> scaring me. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> uh, that's coming up. And then we're going to end the show with something called The Wisdom of Dave. We started it last week. It's David Lee Roth, as only he can spout off whatever it is he's spouting off. And it's funny, and it's ridiculous, and it's pure Dave. And it's coming up at the very end of this episode of Famous Lost Words. What a lineup. Let's start with David Bowie. Okay, Bowie from 1978, interviewed by a, by a classic guy around this building named uh, Larry Wilson, news guy and great interviewer. And this was upon the release of the album Heroes. He was asked about whether he was slipping into a different persona 
uh, for the Heroes album, and he also talks here about getting the audience involved in his concerts. Yeah, there's certainly no character involved as per se on on the albums, or um, and not on the next stage show either. That will be fairly straight ahead. So we're going to get finally to see what's underneath Ziggy Stardust, um, George Orwell, and all <laughs> the others involved in your in your in your personae. Um, I, I don't quite know how it's going to come across. I, I, I've, I've got to... Um, I'm working on a method of having the audience participate in the next show to a certain extent because uh, um, a lot of the spontaneous element of the albums, I feel, could be lost if, if it was presented as a format show. Mm -hmm. So I've got to work very heavily on, on trying to incorporate um, a different response from the audience. So they have some degree of, um, of say in the selection of the material to be played that night and in what sequence. And I've come up with some original ideas, and we'll see how they work on stage. <laughs> the, I can see pandemonium breaking out. All right, who wants to hear what, right? Well, uh, it would do if one, if one let it get to that stage. I mean, I will put over a, um, uh, a particular decision, but then there will be some arbitrary choices to be made, and I th I'm devising a way where the audience en masse can contribute to that. Mm. <laughs> okay. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> so, an interactive concert. Just shout out what you want. But did, did you ever see the shows that Costello did with the uh, sort of roulette wheel of choices, and he would spin it with the song titles? Oh, well, that's a good idea. Yeah, yeah. So there he is. So, so David Bowie, and you know, like you know, say what you want about the the concept of what he's talking about, but the fact is that's Bowie being the artist, always trying to rethink everything, including mm -hmm. how an audience interacts uh, with the, with the band and with the artist. Um, and here he is talking about uh, producers and being a producer himself. Producers, uh, I, I try to change the term to recorders. I mean, now when I produce somebody, um, I tend to call it recording somebody. I don't, I'm, I'm getting off the word production. It has the wrong, wrong charisma for me. I don't like that word. Um, what I look for in somebody who's recording with me is somebody who is uh, technically adept more than anything else and uh, generally uh, yes and a, uh, generally a shoulder to lean on at times and sort of and bounce advice back and forth from this Conti fits that perfectly oh absolutely plus he's a fine engineer and he's got good ears and a very old friend of mine I've known him for years and years God knows how many and of course he's talking about his uh, longtime collaborator Tony Visconti right and who performed and produced on uh, many of Bowie's albums uh, and he even did uh, Bowie's last two albums the final two right yeah yeah Okay, this is my favorite track from the interview. We asked Bowie about how he lives. I live a, a comparatively Spartan lifestyle. Um, I'm not a, a flamboyant liver at all. You have a pretty nice house. I have no house at all. Where are all those photographs taken? People Magazine and Circus and all those others? Oh, anybody's house that the photographer generally knows oh. somebody. I've never had a house and I don't intend buying one. I, it's never occurred to me to have one. That would be ruinous to, um, I think, to what I do, which is... Generally, a, a state of transience that's been a, a strong force through all my work, and I think to uh, commit myself to something that had a, a, a sort of a center, a pivot, like a home, per se, or a piece of land somewhere, that would uh, ridicule everything I'm doing. <laughs> now, you've Googled rock stars' mansions, haven't you? Well, I certainly have. Okay, so <laughs> Bowie says all that, 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 you know, having a house would ridicule everything he stands for, hmm. which is just... Funny. And again, it's pure Bowie being artist and thinking in a way that none of us can conceive of. Um, and it sounds awfully posh. That accent and that attitude are very, very <laughs> funny. Um, but yes, 
after hearing that clip, I googled the mansions of David Bowie, and boy, you should have seen mm. what I saw. Um, he certainly changed his tune, and I think that was kind of once he uh, once he managed to amass a lot more money and uh, and got and, the best advice from his accountant that he could. That's right. And after the Bowie bonds, right? Yes, yes. <laughs> anyway, so uh, you need so to I invest, Dave. For sure, for sure. So we asked him, so doesn't he love the, the glamour life of a rock star? Well, I think that's sort of a presumption. I mean, what I tend to do is I live a very quiet life. I mean, I, um, I really play no part in the, in the rock and roll circle. It, it, it certainly isn't my lifestyle. Mine is a, it's a one of a traveller. I, I move to a city, I take an apartment for a couple of months and um, really get involved with the people and the society that I'm living in in at the time and so I tend to pick fairly anonymous kinds of places I was in Thailand for a bit um, in Japan I've been staying there quite a bit um, and then of course the Berlin period but hardly ever in, in capacity as a rock and roller or whatever yeah. it's not it doesn't appeal to me at all excuse me <laughs> <laughs> you know the funny thing is is I don't know about you but I love David Bowie through and through his artistry his music I just love him and so I feel a little badly making fun of him from this era um, but you know what he's saying is just true to who, who he was at the time you know and his characters and his personalities and the, the, the these characters that he played over the years I don't know it's like he's like a shapeshifter right he is and you get the feeling that his opinions and his feelings about things yeah. and his theories and philosophies are also constantly in that's, flux that's right and listen to this next part because you know you can tell that he is you know pushing back against materialism but then we asked him if he was comfortable financially oh yes I am I, I mean over the last couple of years um, I seem to have got most of my house in order I'm still not by any means what one could consider wealthy, um, but I, I do have enough for myself and my son to survive well on and to keep traveling and to, enough to plow back into the next year's work, which mm. is generally what I do with money. Do you have to finance your own projects then? Yes. Initially, because most of them, are, I find, uh, say somebody like Iggy, it's quite hard to, um, in the beginning it was quite hard to get people to listen to him, um, and that's an obstacle. One of the, that was the hardest part about working with him. Um, is that convincing other people that he was important and it took some time um, and it really it had a lot to do with having him show himself and, and sort of show that he could do a tour without sort of freaking out collapsing or whatever and he's proved that now twice I think the second tour is still at it I mean it's been three months or something yeah. um, so one sort of initially puts in quite a lot of um, support financial support in the beginning of projects yeah so you've underwritten Iggy Pop to some degree um, he's paid me back everything that I've ever contributed toward him mm. he's uh, he's a good he's a good guy to work with really is I love that yes yeah that's fantastic I mean that's just an artist doing the very best thing they can do which is you know sort of paying homage literally to the people that came before, people that influenced them, yeah. who they think are important and maybe need a little focus. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, and they were really, you could tell they were very close. And around the time when Bowie died, you know, Iggy had a lot of kind things to say. This is Famous Lost Words. I'm Christopher Ward. And I'm Tom Jokic. We're in the middle of a conversation with David Bowie. Back to him in a sec. But first of all, still want to remind you that still to come, we've got a great conversation uh, with In Excess about seven months before the passing of Michael Hutchins, and oh, he's boy. in great spirits here, so we've got that coming up in just a few minutes. Also, uh, the chat with uh, Linda Ronstadt from 1989. Oh, uh, I love this one. She's got such a 
big personality. I know, and honestly, I don't think I knew that about her. Like she's got, like, like she's just kind of, you know, um, so exuberant, and mm-hmm. she's really energetic, especially when she's talking about working with Aaron Neville, who before that time was well known in the, to a lot of musicians and had one or two hits, but he wasn't really a big name. And she helped turn that around. So we'll hear that in just a few minutes. She's as well. so respectful. Of other musicians that's and singers, true. and I think that's one of the reasons that people loved her so much. That's right. And we still have the wisdom of Dave. We started it last week. Oh my goodness! I know it was. Could it get any more wise oh, than last it, week? Well, he wanted to aerobicize last week, no. and you wanted Ooh. to have a shower as soon as you heard it. So, but right now, let's return to David Bowie, and uh, we're talking about movies now with Bowie. And he was disappointed by the box office for the Man Who Fell to Earth that movie. But we talked to him about acting in general. Do you consider yourself a success as a, as an actor in your own mind from the role in The Man Who Fell to Earth? Um, it really doesn't matter to me very much. I, it's not a career that I wish to indulge in. Mm-hmm. Um, I've seen the film but once, um, and I was quite interested in my performance. It was um, an interesting performance. Um, but it was the actual process of making the film that was, for me, the most rewarding. Mm. Kind of a hobby approach, then? Uh, mm, well, no, it's, a, it's a, a learning period again. I mean, it's a question of... I spent all my free time watching Nick and watching the cameraman and, and taking in as much as I could about the, the art of making films. All right, so there he is talking about movies and the art of making films. And we also asked him about the burgeoning punk rock movement. Okay, so this is 1978, and, uh, and he's, you know, punk is kind of threatening on all levels. And we asked him uh, about punk and bands that only knew how to play three chords well yeah yeah i can't stand movements i'm i'm an indiv- i i like the idea i'm a sort of i guess uh, uh an artistic anarchist i believe in sort of artistic self-rule i can't stand bodies or gangs of people in any way shape or form whether it's political or artistic i it's one thing that reduces me to um uh, absolute uh, yeah. <laughs> um, I can't see a movement. I can see a lot of very new individual artists and musicians, and I think some of them are too ready to jump under the umbrella of punk to maybe give themselves um, some initial um, stability from the, from the start. And I think it's unfortunate because it may cripple their writing in time if they're quite if they're so willing to um, have themselves categorised at such an early stage. Well, that's that's the main thing that I I, I like about um, uh, the new bands is that there is an incredible wave of enthusiasm for uh, making some kind of sound, um, which uh, I can't I can't fault at all. Um, referring to your three chord uh, thing, I think there was a chap called Buddy Holly that did quite well with three chords. I mean, I don't think that's uh, necessarily a a bad undertaking. I think it's how you use those three chords, and that'll show show itself i mean some bands will definitely come up with the right three chords mm. and many others i think will just have a good time for a few months very very interesting yes because you know many would say there was a spirit of punk in what bowie did yep. in in the way that he you know sort of constantly rejected what had come before and, mm-hmm. and reinvented um but i wonder you know in the punk movement how many people would have um looked upon him as you One know, of the dinosaurs. Exactly. Something yeah. from the past to yeah. be rejected and moved on from. Yeah. We're going to be hearing an interview with um, Joey and Johnny uh, from the Ramones in the next uh, few episodes. Mm. And it's and it's excellent. But boy, oh boy, you know, the, the, the tearing down 
of the big names in rock and the excess of the Rolling Stones. And, you know, they name bands like Sticks and Kansas and all those bands that I think they just despised and and wanted to, um, wanted to you know, reinvent, if not reinvent, then at least revive what the true spirit of rock and roll was, which was energy, guitars, drums, and a lot of screaming, right? There's a lot of difference between Sticks and stones. <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, sticks, you know, rightly or wrongly, were yeah. lumped together with people like Foreigner yes. as sort of corporate yes. rock. Although, yeah. you know, the Rolling Stones started doing big tours that were sponsored, and I'm sure that flew in the face of rock and roll in some sure. people's minds. Sure, sure. But, yeah. Bo- I mean, Bowie's music was so sophisticated in those mm. days, too. Mm-hmm. I mean, to me, I, I love the fact that he rejected what went before. Yeah. Absolutely, and recreated it and, uh, and everything. So there you go. So, the, so Bowie from 1978, so about 40 years ago, and uh, it, it was great to hear that. And I've got to tell you, Christopher, there are more Bowie interviews where that came from. You know, How long do we have to wait? So, so here we are. Um, how, how many more weeks do we have to wait before I play, play you another Bowie interview? What do you think? I'd say three weeks is good. <laughs> it'll, be, it'll be all Bowie all the time, and that will be the same one in which we do Sticks and Stones. Okay. <laughs> all right. This is Famous Lost Words, and I'm Christopher Ward. And I'm Tom Jokic. Okay. So. Night. Australia. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Uh, did you, have you seen many of the Australian bands from the 80s and 90s perform? Like, Are you I, talking about like Midnight Oil? Midnight Oil, uh, Men at Work. Uh, no, the mental only, as anything in you know, bands like that. No, I don't think I saw any of those bands except for In Excess. Right, it was In Excess, and I think they opened for the Go Go's. And I kind of wished Oops. it was the other way around. <laughs> oh my goodness! But it was a great. It, honestly, it was a great show, and the Go Go's were terrific too. But um, uh, but this was In Excess, probably in about uh, 82, 83, around the time mm. of songs like uh, I Send a Message, maybe Original Sin, which. Oh, is an amazing song. Right. Nile Rogers production. Anyway, so I saw them around then. But you have a thought about the uh, about the Australian bands. Go ahead. Well, I think somewhat like Canadian bands, they are forced to really put in their time uh, working in the club scene and on the road in order to develop a following, mm-hmm. sort of, you know, one fan at a time. Right, like see Blue Rodeo for whereas, that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, whereas a lot of bands um, in the States get a leg up because there's so much funding available and management talent and labels are scouring clubs in LA so they're getting signed very very young whereas bands like In Excess I mean they did their time I I saw uh, Midnight Oil once they blew my mind they were one of the best live acts I've ever seen and I think there were a lot of Canadian bands that subscribe to that same Mm -hmm. sort of work ethic to Mm -hmm. get to where they deserve to be absolutely yeah and it shows and they name check um, kind of working in uh, Australia and what it's like. And uh, right at the end of this interview, they'll they'll make a remark about uh, uh, fellow rock stars, and uh, and they say, you know, they should try uh, touring in Australia and see how they can manage that. Right. So, like I said at the beginning of the show, this is from April of 1997. This is seven months before the death of Michael Hutchins, which was such a tragedy and such a loss. Um, they were promoting their album Elegantly Wasted, and um, but of course, uh, when this interviewer, who's Dale Smith, who's a terrific interviewer when he uh, started this interview he was asking them about their biggest album do you feel like now the as soon as I say oh, in excess everybody immediately thinks of of kick mm-hmm. do you feel like that album's just hanging over your head it's so successful it was so big 
You almost feel like you're running away from it. It's a double-edged sword. You gotta obviously it enjoy the success. Is. Yeah, it, sure. But it seems to because everyone brings it up. It yeah. doesn't doesn't seem to it doesn't come into the equation as far as we're concerned. No, no, no. no. I mean, keep moving you know, on. and also you got to remember, everybody had a big time in the eighties. If they had any reasonable amount of success, it was a time when everybody sold. I mean, no one's ever had record sales like, like it since, really. Yeah. And, you know, Michael Jackson, doesn't matter. You know, it's, it was an incredible time. And if you hit it, bang, mm. boy, did you. Yeah. You know? Kick became one of those albums that was a soundtrack for those times. So, mm. yeah. Very much so. Now, you guys have, uh, your status has changed over the last couple of years. Now mm. you're, you're family men. Yes. Yeah. Um, well, actually, some of us have been for a long time. Tim's got a 15-year-old son. Oh, uh, what does your dad do for a living? My dad's a rock star. <laughs> yeah. yeah bum- was, bummer. Actually, yeah. Mm-hmm. He, was out with, he was out with him the other day in Sydney, and the pumpkins were playing in Sydney, and he was, he was standing there, with, and James was sort of moshing across the horizon. <laughs> and, um, and then they played a couple of um, uh, Medley of In Excess songs um, uh, at, the, at the concert, you know. Uh, live, which was cool, and so suddenly James is like, "Oh, you're valid. <laughs> oh, that's what you do, yeah. right? Because it's oh, weird. You, you, you know? weren't kidding for those. You months. weren't kidding all that. Years that's where you've been. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's where the money's coming from. Yeah. yeah. How did How did your relationship start up? Because um, now you're you're the one that uh, you you probably have the most recent addition with the baby. Uh, no, Gar- Gary. Have you got one? I win. Yeah. Really? Yeah, he I've got to buy a baby sweepstakes. A four, yeah. four month old in tomorrow's time. Yeah, this time I, tomorrow. I got an eight month oh. old. Um, Gary's got a girl. We both got girls. Mm. I've uh, got two girls. So I got a five year old and a four month old. Yeah. No, it's 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 something that's been around the band for all for you know since we started. I mean. In, we just don't get a sort of a critical mass at the moment. Yeah, <laughs> three yeah. babies a year. Yeah. yeah, up to nine kids. Come in bunches. <laughs> yeah. Surrogates and yeah, yeah. yeah. No, we're all we're all potent men. I mean, we're, we're, we're we're Australian. Your name, uh, Michael, comes up in uh, Rolling Stone magazine a little while ago. Mm-hmm. Did you hear what about was, that? What was it? Was the, it was the inc- the incident that happened with uh, who was it from Oasis? One of those. It's been a couple. Everyone in England, in London, has had one. <laughs> Last time I saw Tricky, you know Tricky, the 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 singer, you know, yep. yeah, he, he just finished whacking the crap out of Liam in the toilets. He's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, been. They've all been punched by yeah. the best of us. Yeah. Yeah. I've been standing in line for a while, but I just can't get near him. I know. Jeez, yeah. what's with those guys? And apparently, was it at the Brit Awards where they got up? Yeah, yeah. and yeah. they were just. Yeah, uh, well, I don't know. It's weird, you know. I, I, they're they're a little edgy, edgy due to due to A class, I think. <laughs> um, <laughs> so a little paranoid. <laughs> um, I just I just sat, sat did down. Did you get that? that one, yeah. Okay, I just I was being subtle. Um, you know, I don't know. Too it's, much cups of who tea. cares? You know, it's it's uh, the problem with Noel is. Uh, <laughs> And I know him, and it's he, one minute he's really nice, next minute he's just scum, you know, to people. And uh, the problem, have you, do you know, did you ever have a, have a, um, uh, a show called The Thunderbirds? You know, Thunderbirds. The <laughs> Thunderbirds was yeah. puppets. Yeah, puppet yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. Remember Parker? Yeah. <laughs> yes, my lady. Noel Gallagher. <laughs> yes, my lady. Yes, my lady. Should I bring yeah. the car around, yeah. my lady? <laughs> it's um, kind of sad because <laughs> when we arrived in Vancouver to record, it's like, yeah, the, the, the you know the, the bellboy saying yeah, the, uh, you know Oasis were here last night for the first time. They played the arena, and it's like great. How was it? Well, they walked off after three songs because someone <laughs> threw a sand shoe on stage. It's like yep, that's tough. really looking after your fans. Yeah. Tough guys. Yeah, it's like yeah, Jesus. Christ. They know. should try you know a couple of nights in the Australian pubs and see how they go. <laughs> Toughen them up. Yeah, that the shoe will be filled <laughs> and inserted. 
Yeah. yeah. So I don't know. It's, I wish them the best, but I think they better get over themselves a bit. Oh, okay. So there you go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I love the, well the brother fighting thing. Of course, is yeah. a rock cliche. I mean, you can go right back to the Everly Brothers and yes. all these people that duked it out literally on stage and um, I mean the kinks of course I, I think maybe there should be like a tag team wrestling thing for brothers in rock and roll bands yeah. maybe even a multi-generational one so the kinks brothers the Davies brothers yes. versus the Gallaghers what do you think have we got something I th- there uh, yes and I think be- I think because the Gallaghers are still pretty spry they could probably kick everybody. They would, but isn't it funny that Christopher, twenty twenty one years later, the Gallagher brothers are still fighting, right? And they're still a thing. And uh, carrying and the just, flame, yeah. And it's just so funny to hear, you know, Michael and uh, Gary from In Excess talking about this. And it's so great to hear Michael having such a great time and being in such great spirits as they're about to embark on a tour. And of course, that would be the that would be the end of In Excess once they, uh, well, the end of In Excess with Michael. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, they did the rock star In Excess and right, picking a right. picking a new lead singer. But you know, it was it, it was just terrific hearing Michael being so happy, so engaged, and so into it. And and he was, you know, having fun in the interview, um, and that makes the tragedy of his loss so much greater. Okay, Fleetwood Mac, mm-hmm. right? One of the biggest bands of the seventies, one of the fightingest, druggingest, lovingest bands that you'll ever uh, you'll ever encounter. But boy, do those records still sound great! They still sound great. Yeah. And I use that those words, fightingest, druggingest, lovingest, because I just read an article <laughs> yesterday. From 1997, it's a Rolling Stone article uh, under that same title. Oh, and it's right. when they got back together again for The Dance. That was their reunion tour, right? And it is extraordinary. The, t- the tales they tell about fighting, fighting on stage, right? We're talking about the, uh, the brothers. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's, there's at one point where Stevie Nicks is doing her twirly dance, with her robes. And the Welsh witch? That's right. And uh, Lindsay is none too pleased for whatever reason. He's mad at Stevie. They've split up by this point. Right. So he's madder than hell at Stevie, and she's doing her thing. And he picks up, he grabs his leather jacket and pulls it over his head and starts to mimic her on stage. <laughs> oh, she man. is not happy. She walks, uh, he walks over to her, I guess, to say, what's your problem? And there's some sort of altercation. There's a disagreement as to whether she hit him or he kicked her. Anyway, Ouch. he runs off the stage. Everybody's chasing Lindsay. Not to get him back on the stage, but to see which one of them can get to him first to beat him up. Okay? Man. Christine gets there first. And she slapped him. She said, the only time I've ever slapped a person is when I slapped Lindsey Buckingham on that night for leaving the stage being so unprofessional. And she said, I may have thrown a glass of wine at him as well. But there, <laughs> oh, Christine probably saved him because she wouldn't let anybody else get at him until she took a couple of wax. Wow. Lindsey doesn't quite remember the story the same way, but he does remember it being very unprofessional and being kind of embarrassed at his actions. Now... I've been, you know, I was a producer on one of the interviews that we've done with Lynn, with uh, Stevie. She was fantastic. Mm-hmm. She was so gracious. And I've been in an interview uh, from the late 80s when, uh, w- when Lindsay was promoting Tango in the Night. Right. That Fleetwood Mac album. And he was fantastic. So it's funny to see them in all their different, you know, styles and flavors, right? Um, this clip I'm going to play you is Stevie talking about the whirlwind of joining Fleetwood Mac and hitting it big right away. Sometimes I lay in bed and think to myself, how strange that a year ago, 
this was not happening at all. And I was totally broke and pretty unhappy, actually. And, um, and now, a year, exactly a year later, I have a hit album, and, and I've got enough money to pay all my bills, and I'm comfortable. And then I think, why did that happen to me and not to all the other musicians I know in L.A., you know, that have been here for years, longer than I have? And I think, it, and I think it's because there's something, was meant, it was meant for that to happen to you, because you obviously had something to offer that maybe somebody else didn't have, and you worked very hard for it. We worked for that album sure. this last year. And all of us, our, our health is all pretty much shot right now. And that's, that proves right there that we certainly didn't sit around waiting for this wonderful album to fall into our laps. We made it and we went right out and knocked ourselves out playing for everybody we could get to for the last year, you know. Every place we could possibly play, we played. So that's amazing. They really kind of hit the ground running there. Great stuff. We still got more clips to go, including... I love this. It's an interesting perspective. It's what Stevie Nicks thought about the album Rumors the first time she heard it by herself. And that, I know from experience, is a very different experience than that whole in the mood, in the moment, in the studio. People are blasting the music back on huge speakers and everybody's really pumped. But then there's the moment of truth. For sure. That's coming up next on Famous Lost Words. This is Famous Lost Words, and that's one of the greatest songs of all time. You know what, Christopher? Thunder only happens when it's raining, and players only love you when they're playing. I'm sorry, it's a great lyric. It is a it's great, a great lyric. song. I mean, everything about it, it's the perfect pop song. I mean, just Mick Fleetwood's drumming. I know. Who would know that a song that is essentially a ballad, even though there's drumming in it, the drumming is so sensational. And if you want understated but perfect drumming, listen to all of Rumors. He is exquisite and perfect in every song. Mm-hmm. All right, so let's pick up our conversation. So this is Stevie. This is actually Mick Fleetwood talking because Stevie and Lindsay joined immediately following the departure of Bob Welch. And how do you feel about Bob Welch, Christopher? Um, well, <laughs> Sentimental Lady is not my favorite song. No, those <laughs> lyrics are terrible. Yeah, well, 14 joys and a will to be merry. What can you say? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so in this clip, Mick Fleetwood says that even Bob Welch himself said that Stevie and Lindsay joining the group was an improvement over him. Oh, man. I was speaking to uh, Bob, obviously, was the one he wanted to leave. And he was saying that, to admit, whatever the reasons why, why I left, which is he just simply wanted to leave and do his band thing, which he's doing, he said, this is absolutely right. This is, karma was supposed to be like that. I was supposed to leave and whatever happened, because it happened so quick, and it's like Bob was out, and Stevie and Lindsay were in. A week later. Wow, that is a fast turnaround. How one guy leaves, revolving door, and and even he admits uh, that it was a better, uh, a, a much Im- uh, improved lineup of the band. I would like to hear, have heard that yes. from, from the late Bob Welch. From him himself, yeah. right. <laughs> his, his All right. Partners. Okay, and here's Stevie talking about listening to rumors on her own for the first time. I came home. After we did the album, we went, me and Chris went to uh, Hawaii for three weeks to rest and um, didn't hear the album or any music or anything, anything for three weeks. It was very boring. And I came back here and uh, had a pressing of the album and just put it on and lay down my cash by myself and just listened to it front to back. And I really enjoyed it. And I thought, I like this album, not because it's me. And, not, and I hadn't heard it in several weeks, so I could step back a little bit, you know. 
And I just really enjoyed listening to it. And I knew right then that it was going to go. Yeah, because I know which other albums that I put on and enjoy listening to, and they're all hit albums. And so it wasn't any big sparkling. Uh, it was just a, f a good feeling that other people were going to enjoy sitting and listening just as much as I was enjoying it. And I should be tired of it. You know, I still listen to it and really enjoy it. I played it for Mick last night completely. Yeah, I did the other day too. Cool. Yeah, so there you go. You, you were telling me about a book. Yeah, by Ken Kayette, who... Uh, I guess engineered co-produced uh, rumors. There's a there's a, a book on the making of rumors. If you want to know the ins and outs of well, obviously one of the most successful records in the history of popular music. That would be great. So so what you're doing is you're assigning homework to our audience. Is that correct? Yes, and okay. you have to know who's who's famous. The father is he? Yeah, that's uh, he is the father of Colby Kaye. There you go. Who did the song "Bubbly" and many yeah. other songs? Yeah, and she's terrific, boy. Okay, I got to tell you a story about Colby. I'm, I know we're getting off track here. So <laughs> go Ken for Kaye's it. daughter, uh, Colby Kaye, comes in and has a big hit with the song "Bubbly," right? And she's performing it on our radio show, and oh, she's live? singing live. Oh, that's cool. Just with her guitar and her, and I swear to God, eye contact for for three three minutes and twenty eight seconds only with me while she was singing. Just saying. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that's so my story a, and I'm sticking kind of to it. Kind of an otherworldly experience for you, I'm thinking. <laughs> yeah, she, if she probably left the studio going, well, that creepy guy was looking at me for three <laughs> minutes and 28 seconds. <laughs> okay. St here's Stevie and I, I just love this clip because there's so much camaraderie and there's a lot, of, you know, a lot of fun in this clip. But she's talking about how there aren't as many groupies for Fleetwood Mac because there are women in the band. But she also she also has an interesting take on the difference between male groupies and female groupies, okay? Mm. See, men are much cooler than women are. They're much more sophisticated, I think, when it comes to a really nice guy is not going to worm his way backstage like a snake. A woman will. <laughs> it's true. It's true. I mean, a guy, yeah, a guy will stand out there and go, yeah, you're really neat. I'd like to meet you. But he isn't going to come backstage. Whereas a woman goes, I'm coming backstage and you're not stopping me. And he gets, she gets back there through our crew, through our road manager who is standing there with blocks of bricks, you know, you know, well, keeping people from coming back, you know, but they get back there. <laughs> Okay, boy, you're, those calls, cards and letters are going to be coming in, Mick. Really? <laughs> we'll be talking to Mick, and we'll be checking into a hospital after he takes care of all these cards and letters. <clears throat> on, that, on that note, on that note, we'll ring off. Now that we've taken the interview down into the gutter, we're going to we're going to finish it right off. Setting the cause of feminism back a full century. Uh, thank you, Stevie Nicks. Well, that's pretty funny, though. She definitely has a, a, a very strong take on the difference between the, the male uh, fans of the group and the female fans. Boy, oh boy. And she's seen it all. But, you know, I really love the fact that you get a, a real sense of the group dynamic, how much absolute fun these people were having with each other when they were having fun with each other, when the drama wasn't kicking in. You can tell that Stevie still loves her bandmates, and she's giving just as good as she's getting it. I don't know much, but I know I love you. 
This is Famous Lost Words. And that's Linda Ronstadt and Aaron Neville from 1989. We have an interview from around then. Tom, if you're fascinated by the musical history of Laurel Canyon and the birth of the singer-songwriter era in the 70s, I recommend Michael Walker's book, Laurel Canyon, The Inside Story of Rock and Roll's Legendary Neighborhood. Mm -hmm. It tells the whole story of the intertwined lives and careers of Crosby, Stills, and Nash, the Eagles, Joni Mitchell, Jackson Brown, the Mamas and Papas, Carole King. At the epicenter of this hive of creativity, the Queen Bee, is Linda Ronstadt. Really? Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, she's incredibly talented, she's wise, and very good at bringing creative people together. In this lively interview, she starts by talking about Aaron Neville. Well, Aaron, um, I had been a fan of the Neville Brothers, like I think everybody else that that, that, that likes to, to play music. You know, everybody that I know that's in a rock and roll band, if they could be a Neville Brother for a night. If you ask Keith Richards what band he'd like to be in, I know he'll tell you the Neville Brothers. So, um... So I, you know, used to go and hear them play when they would come to Los Angeles. I'd be hanging over the balcony with every other musician in town. But when I went to um, play with Nelson Riddle for the World's Fair in New Orleans, you know, I went was with my jazz band, and of course the first thing they all wanted to do when we got finished was go out and hear the Neville Brothers. So we were out uh, looking for them, and we found them. And I was just sitting there in the audience completely enjoying the show when he called me up on stage. I don't know how he found out I was in the audience. I don't, you know, because it's kind of a last-minute thing. But I ran right up there, even though I don't usually like to get up and jam because it's kind of usually a little disorganized. But I wasn't going to pass up a chance to sing with Aaron Neville. And we sang this doo-wop song. And I thought our voices sounded really good together. But then afterward, I thought, well, you know, anyone would think they sound good singing with Aaron Neville. He's one of the best singers in the world. And But Aaron thought so, too. So he called me and invited me to sing with him at New Orleans uh, against the hungry and homeless, a, uh, a benefit that he, he does every year. And so I ran right back there. And the, the only song that we knew all the way through together, all the words and all the music, was the Schubert's Ave Maria. <laughs> so we sang that. And, and then I knew when something's wrong with my baby, so I taught him that. And uh, that started our duet. And then, then from that point on, we were just decided we, you know, we had to be a duet. We had to figure out stuff to, that we could record. Let me see if I've got this straight. I, I mean, it's probably not too, uh, too much of an exaggeration to say that Aaron Neville couldn't get arrested for the longest time. I mean, after his 19, what was it, 67 hit? Um, well, it's an outrage. And, 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 and like it is, you know. I mean, and, and, and then suddenly he's the, the musician's musician. I know Huey Lewis was, uh, mm-hmm. was working with him on his tour. And, and the Stones uh, had the meters opening, you know, for them. I mean, it, it's just... The Neville Brothers are so good, and I think it's a shame that, that, that radio has kind of ignored them, but they're not doing it now. They're starting to, you know, their records are selling now. And they're always a smash wherever they play. I mean, everybody just loves it more than anything they ever heard. They always kill, kill you live, you know. They just knock you out live. They blow the walls down. And I think a lot of that, they're a victim of, 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 of what a lot of other great music is a victim of, which is that kind of corporate approach to radio programming, which is absolutely destroying popular music because it's destroying regionalism. And the Neville Brothers are regional music. They come from New Orleans. They only sound, they sound like music that can only come from that region. It can't, there's no other place on earth that can produce the Neville Brothers except New Orleans. So, and it, you know, it's not synthesizer music and it's not rock and it's not this, it's not that. It's Creole rhythm and blues. So, um, you know, if there wasn't a, a, a place for that in that tight format, then, then fully the radio didn't play them. And it's just terrible because the, the public suffers from that, you know. I think the public will accept a much vaster uh, assortment of music than, than what the radio is playing. Because I've had, I made three records with Nelson Riddle, I made the trio record, and I made the Mexican record. All those records were extremely successful in the sales department, and none of them were played on the radio. So I'm telling you that the, the public is willing 
to, to embrace music that, that the radio isn't giving them. What prompts you to, to do another album? Uh, for instance, do you just finish washing the car and you say to yourself, geez, I think I'm going to phone up Peter Rasher. I do, actually. I, 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 you know, something will happen to me and a coin will drop in my, my, the jukebox in my brain and the song will start playing. I mean, it'll, it'll stop playing, you know, it'll start blaring out of my head. And it's like sometimes I think, you know, if somebody's standing next to me, if they could hear it, I'm kind of surprised they can't hear it, you know, because I'll just be kind of sitting there thinking the song's, you know, <laughs> and... And the Jimmy Webb songs just kept coming back and back, and they just wouldn't leave me alone. I mean, they just wouldn't leave me alone. And they're so hard to sing, I was kind of wishing they'd, they'd go away, you know, not bother me anymore. But they didn't. So I, I called up Jimmy, you know, forget Peter. I called up Jimmy and said, now, look, Jimmy, you know, you wrote these songs, and they're so hard to sing, so you're just going to have to come out here and teach me how to sing them, and that's all there is to it, because I can't sing them unless you teach me. And I'm not sure I can sing them anyway, but I'm going to try. <laughs> they are challenging songs, but you know she's going to knock it out of the park, Absolutely, right? yeah. Mm-hmm. Great stuff from Linda Ronstadt from 1989. As we now finish this episode with The Wisdom of Dave, here's David Lee Roth. Uh-oh. Well, I do most of the words, you know, and it becomes a kind of thing where you reflect what's around you. I've always said that hard rock, or at least big rock music, the kind that we play, is simply folk music delivered at high velocity. You know, <laughs> shot from guns. I'd just like to clear up a lot, of, clear the air right now, in that, you know, Van Halen's been together probably about nine years, handful of years before we started making records, another handful since then. And in that whole time, say nine, ten years, quite seriously, you know, I always make jokes and I always laugh about it, you know, and paint this glorious picture. But in fact, Van Halen has rehearsed, recorded, practiced, actually worked on the material at least I'd say three, maybe four or five hours. There you go. David Lee Roth, the wisdom of Dave. Mm. All right, that does it for Famous Lost Words. I'm Tom Jokic. And I'm Christopher Ward. And don't forget to get caught up on past episodes of Famous Lost Words on the iHeartRadio app and on iTunes.